0: I have an encouragement against freaking out over some of the things you might be freaking out about. I have one quick thought about the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial, but we will begin with a high-profile pastor's son who has deconverted. We'll start there on this week's Corey Tract Show. In an effort not to ever be guilty of gossip, I will even leave the names out. We don't need the prominent names, we just need the story, and I will tell it to you in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to the Corey Truax Show on WHRT, his radio talk, 89.7 and 91.9, and very importantly, wherever you find podcasts. Thank you, podcasters, for being out there, listening and supporting the show at anchor.fm. If what I do is something you find of value, as we're talking about dollars now anchor.fm anchor.fm you can support the show monthly as several of you many of you do and i'm grateful for that i also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at beachwood church beachwood church meets in greenville south carolina the booming and beautiful greenville south carolina on 10 30 at sunday mornings in uh where i was gonna say in greenville but i already said that you can find us there 10 30 and also at beachwood.cc beachwood.cc and i hope you will i saw the story in the new york times And I was immediately just grieved. I didn't really know there was so much history in the story. One of the most prominent voices in evangelicalism of the last 40 years, really. He's a top five figure in Christianity. For the past 40 years, there was a story in the New York Times about his son. His son is now in his 50s. And apparently at 19 years old, the son left his dad's church Went off into lascivious living. And even the son says that. Says that he, he calls what he calls that the living he was doing at 19 through 23. Kind of a gross lifestyle. And then he comes back to church at 23 years old. There's a restoration. He seems to be walking in the faith for a while. But relatively quickly walks away again. I never knew this story. I never knew it. And I tell you, I, I have a heart for parents that go through that. I think about my two nephews that I got to play something of an dad role for. The idea of them walking away crushes me. I can, I could, a thousand times I could be okay with, figure out a way to be okay with them walking away because God has called them into ministry somewhere and they're faithfully following Jesus away from me across the world and I'll never get to see them again. I could take that a thousand times before I could take them living just down the road from me, but them not faithfully following Jesus. The pain that has to come from that. And I never knew the story. And now this son of this very prominent pastor, he has started a TikTok channel, or I don't know, account, I don't know what you call TikTok streams. And he's out there telling a story. In some level, he's telling his deconversion story and just generally critiquing evangelicalism. I thought about playing you some of the audio from his TikTok, but none of it's really revolutionary. It's stuff you've all heard before from people who are once in the faith and leave it. But once I heard the story, I formulated some thoughts for you. I just want to share those. Number one, I've always been interested in deconversion stories. One of my best friends in college is a deconversion story. Now lives very far away and as his own story of growing up in the church and walking away. I actually have lots of friends with that story. I know I have an audience just barely big enough that there's more than one of you that have lived in these stories where the the fundamental unity between you and a brother, a sister, a cousin, a parent, a child, a son, or a daughter is that you are a family that's Jesus following. And that fundamental bond gets broken. It's... It's truly devastating. And so I I hear these, and I always get interested in them. I played for you on a previous episode a guy named Rhett something or other from a YouTube channel that's gigantic called Rhett and Link, where these two guys, one of them grew up in a tradition much like mine, believed basically the exact same stuff I did on really solid doctrine and the fundamental nature of the Bible. That's where all truth comes from. And in his 40s, walked away i cover some of that. And so I want to to talk about it for a couple reasons. One, I like to examine the criticisms to see if there's merit to them, those who walk away. And then also, my biggest interest is always prevention. As I think about the kids at Beachwood Church, as you think about the kids in your church, what can we do? What can we learn from the deconverted? They call themselves ex-evangelicals. What can we do to prevent this from happening again? So let me start here with the criticisms. There are often fair criticisms. This, I was going to say young man, but he's 20 years older than me. Uh, This guy, the son of the prominent pastor, he says some stuff that even I would say. He makes fun of Christian mission trips. I do too. I make fun of the concept of sending teenagers to impoverished places for a week, often just to take pictures with kids of different ethnicities in their lap so they can post them on social media and make themselves look altruistic. Yeah, I'm skeptical of that. I think of all of the resources that get spent on that and how they could otherwise be sent, and I'm skeptical of that model. Some of you have churches that use that model. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm not telling you you're in sin. I'm telling you I have skepticism of it and have made fun of it some. He talks about, on one of these videos, fairly standard criticisms that you can be in church and have a sermon that talks about literal hell and then just go to lunch afterwards and not really think about the the seriousness of evangelism and what what the need would be to, ha- to have people escape from hell. That's fair. Heck, I, I would say stuff like that. So the criticisms aren't new. They're not revolutionary. And his are more to that line. There's usually two lines of deconversion one is more intellectual and one is personal. There are the intellectual folks. i put Rhett uh, from that Rhett and Link show. He is more in that vein where he deconverted because he started pushing and prodding on some of the arguments and found them want, wanting regarding Christianity. But a lot of deconversions are just personal. It's people's visceral experiences, their anger, their upset around something that happened in church. And so that's their foundation for rejecting the faith. This one is more of the latter. It's more of a personal deconversion, not an intellectual deconversion. So that's that is this this guy. But outside of him, it brings us to a broader a broader discussion in that we are in a deconversion moment. We are in an evangelical moment. There are folks getting popular, even making some money and getting followings from telling their deconversion story. It's a growing group of people who grew up like I did, maybe grew up in church, and they are. They're forming their own media presences and social media groups. And so I just, I dwell on that. We're in that moment of deconversion. I think it's maybe even worth saying that such things are not guaranteed to have to happen in Mass and Scripture, but they are predicted that there would be fallings away. It's, it's why it doesn't necessarily, dis- like it doesn't worry me for the church because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus died for his church. It will always prevail. And no deconversion movement in the 2020s in the United States of America is going to stop the eternal church of Jesus Christ. I'm not nervous for the church. Jesus will prevail. King Jesus will conquer. He will reign. But I do grieve for these people. I grieve for the families. I especially do grieve for those like this man who seemed to have left in some ways because of the people. He looked at Christianity's message, and then he looked at Christianity's practitioners, and the two didn't match. I'll tell you this. That's true. That's nothing new. But yeah, that's, that's, it's, I'm sure that experience is real. I know this, though. Other people's behavior is a terrible reason to do anything. Basing your life on the behavior of others is a terrible reason to believe anything. And I know because I've been trapped in it in my life. I've been trapped myself by the prison of other people's opinions, thoughts, actions. It's a terrible motivation. I see it. I'm saddened by it. I, I grieve for these people because they seem, in part, their blindness towards the genuineness of Jesus, their blindness towards the faith, is often motivated by some real hurt or hatred or both. There's some pain from a church experience that has caused some anger and hatred, and that comes out. And I grieve for the hurt. Someone probably did do them wrong in some way and it hurt them. But I know this, that hate, that anger will never keep you warm. Hate and anger can have flashes of heat, but it's always cold and by yourself. I see that this genre of walking away from the faith, this one that's more based on people and not engaging with the arguments of the faith, they're not engaging with Jesus at all. They're not really engaging with the text Jesus preserved for us in the Bible. They're really engaging with their emotions and their experiences. I notice with a lot of this particular group, they tend to act like hypocrisy is church-unique. The church is uniquely hypocritical. Christians are uniquely hypocritical. I hope I can say this winsomely and not aggressively. I challenge you to go find one person living by their creed, living by the things they say they believe. Go find a business or a corporation that's doing that. Go find an employer somewhere that's actually living and operating by the things they say in their mission statement. Go find a, a neighbor. I know I, I know I'd, I know I don't. I get hypocrisies pointed out in me by somebody, and I'm I kinda wanna say, are you wait, are you surprised? Did you think I was superhuman? Oh no, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. We all are. Yeah, you are too. All of us are. We all live differently than we say. And so I see these deconversions, and again, I am most interested in preventing them. So I have some thoughts on that, parents. And also, before I get into these, I also want to say this. Parent who's had a child walk away, deconvert. In broad strokes, I want to say this, because there are some exceptions, I guess. Do not blame yourself. Some of you might need to blame yourself. If you you had no seriousness around church, their sports schedule was more important, their theater schedule was more important, you put no real emphasis on things of the faith, and you just thought by osmosis, if you go into church twice a, twice a month, uh, that this was going to happen. Yeah, um, I, I don't mind you feeling some of the responsibility for what has taken place, but there are faithful parents who have seen their kids walk away, and I don't—I do not hear me blaming you. And let me hear—let hear me saying: there's hope. We know there is reconciliation. No one is ever too far gone. So a couple words to you, parents. One, challenge your kids with all the best arguments against Christianity. I love that at Beechwood once we went through a Bart Ehrman book. Bart Ehrman is a Jesus-hating, Christian-hating, Bible-hating scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, And a real scholar, smart guy but he makes an argument about the transmissions and translation of the Bible and why you can't trust it. You cannot trust that we have anything approaching a real Bible. And I will admit my first time, I was young, encountering his message, I was shaken by it. And I remember being a little angry. I remember being a little angry that no one had really told me this information, that no point in my Christian upbringing did anyone warn me that some of these facts might be true. Because a, a lot of what Bart Ehrman says factually is correct, and then he makes really wild accusations and assumptions from the facts. He misinterprets them. And the, the work got done. We did a good job with it at Beachwood. My big brother, Doug, did it. It was awesome. And we, I, I feel fine. I could walk anybody through Bart Ehrman's uh, skepticisms and arguments against Christianity. But challenge your kids. Because if you send them out to a secular university, don't know why you would do that, but if you send them out to a secular university and they hear some of these arguments for the first time, they're going to be blown away. You will not have protected them. You will not have let them know that this is what the the devil has put out in the world to, to attack you. Prepare them for every attack. Number two, always point them towards Jesus. And very specifically, don't point them towards people. If you've got them pointed towards some kind of celebrity pastor, careful. We've seen too many of them fall. If you've got them even pointed in any way really towards you, careful. Point them all towards Jesus because, again, one of the themes I hear too much in these deconversion stories is stories about other people, stories about how the church behaved. Okay, yeah, the bride misbehaves sometimes. There are some goats amongst the sheep all kinds of problems in the churches to clean up. We are not pretending that's not true. And none of that has anything to do with whether or not Christ of Nazareth died for your sins and rose again. Focus on Jesus and point them away from following any personality except Jesus. And then parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, those who influence younger people in the church, here's the hardest one. As best you can, As you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, live consistently with your biblical principles as possible. Let them see you live the things you say. And when you don't, apologize. It's one of the most powerful things you can do to a kid. When you know that they've seen you not live consistently with the things you say you believe, say it out loud. Say so, say sorry, do better. So, Challenge your kids with all the hardest and best arguments against the faith. Point them towards Jesus and towards no one else and live consistently with the faith you profess. When you come back, I want to help you not freak out about some things happening in the news. I also have a thought about that Chauvin jury. I think we have some tax policy I want to do today as well. Lots to do when you come back for the rest of The Cory Act Show on WHRT, his radio talk, and wherever you find podcasts. You can stop freaking out about a couple items in the news. I will tell you why in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on His Radio Talk and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening to the show. You can also find me, Corey Truax, wherever you are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I say wherever you're on uh, social media, but every every week it occurs to me I'm not on the snapper chatter or the ticker talker, so I'm not doing that stuff. But, yeah, I'm on the other things, and you can catch up with me there. I hope you will. Here is a, a critique of my people. I love my people, generally. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm also a conservative politically. Uh, put me in a libertarian-esque really more. But uh, in the broader rightist, on the right side of things, here's a critique of our media that I, I got on my nerves last week. There were two stories of really radical things put forward. By the left. There was a bill passed by the House to add Washington, D.C. as a state. And there was a bill presented in the House. I don't think it passed. Oh, yeah, it was was joint in the House and the Senate to pack the court, to add seats to the United States Supreme Court. First, yes, these are bad ideas. They're terrible ideas. They're revolutionary ideas. They They have evil intent, not just different opinion. They have evil intention by trying to do them. All that's true. Now, let me... Correct uh, the coverage, though. Places I, uh, I don't really like conservative media, actually. I don't like media, I, mean, I don't like really any media, honestly. A lot of it's just garbage Just trying to raise your heart rate. But people on conservative media sides were doing blazing headlines about court packing and changing the Senate with D.C. being added as a state. And I want to say to you, if you saw those stories, you freaked out, you're terrified, hey, it's okay. Those things aren't going to happen. All that's been very, already made very clear. They're bad ideas, and there are some bad people who want to do them, but they don't have the power to do it. It's a 50-50 Senate. It takes 60 votes to do anything that radical. And Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema both have both already said, that's Democrat from West Virginia, Democrat from Arizona, have both already said, They don't have any interest in doing something that radical. So we're fine. So much so, it shouldn't even be reported on. It shouldn't be a headline. What was the purpose of the headline? What did we do with conservative media? We decided we wanted some clips, or clicks, I'm sorry, on our website. We wanted people to tune in. We wanted attention. And how do you get attention? Increase the outrage. Get people outraged. I have very little interest in getting people outraged. I sure would like to get them thoughtful and thinking and introspective. And so that's why you're not going to hear me come on and say, freak out about it! Now, I've done a lot of content on why adding D.C. as a state and packing the court are bad ideas and evil ideas. I've done that in depth. Just generally to have the knowledge out there to equip you with argumentation. Not to have you freak out about it because you shouldn't freak out about it. And conservative media shouldn't have freaked out about it. W- one quick note on this. I have, I have said for a long time on the D.C. statehood thing, I understand the 700,000 people there say they want house reps and senators and the bill that was put forward would basically, not basically, here's what it would do it would call all the federal buildings in Washington D.C. they would just call that the district. The district are those things and then the neighborhoods are a new state I I guess they'll call it the state of Columbia or something but that, that type of solution is it's way easier to do this just take all the people that live in those areas you just carved out in those north of the federal buildings give to maryland those south of the uh of the federal buildings those federal buildings give to virginia you'll probably end up creating two more congressional districts one in virginia one in maryland for that so two more electoral college votes in those two states it's it's nice and simple but there is no interest in doing that, because consider what I just said. How simple would that be? They're saying to me they want, they want senators. Okay, you can have the two senators in Virginia. You guys can have the two senators in Maryland. You're telling me you want to vote on members of the Senate. All right, I don't, I think, I don't think it's a great idea, but I understand. I do get that. I understand that. And you, you've made the decision to live in D.C. You don't have to. You can go live in Maryland or Virginia or pick another state if having a senator is very important to you. But okay, so you're wanting that. The very radical thing is to add another state. The adult, rational, logical thing is well, you just guys, you guys vote in Virginia and you guys vote in Maryland. But they don't want that. Why? Because it's not about that. It's not about representation at all. They don't care. They just want the power. They want two more Senate seats. It's only ever about power with these people, not about solutions. It's not about representation and fairness. They just want the power. Okay, uh, that's the, that was the one I wanted to do with the, the, those two stories. You don't have to freak out about them. In conservative media, we should do better and not try to raise everyone's uh, blood pressure with those stories. One other thought here on, I guess, the media generally. So conservative media did this. I'm critiquing my own people today in some ways. There were those in conservative media that disagreed with the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial. I think those people are rational adults. Largely, they they can have that opinion. That's fine. I also find people that thought it was the right decision. I think it's a totally rational thing too. I don't think either opinion's outlandish or out of the out of the out of the the mainstream of of humanity. But conservative folks were super dramatic, and that's my people. I love these people. I I wish them the best. I hope their audiences grow. I hope they sell a lot of merch. I like these people. But they freaked out. Justice is dead. Things like that. Okay, guys. We are the institutional people. It's the left that says, tear everything down. Burn it to the ground. Both literally and figuratively. Burn it down. Burn it all down. We're the institutionalists. That largely, our systems and structures are good. They're flawed. And can be made better. But by nature, they're generally good. Including investigations and trial by jury yeah these are good things and and a, and a guy Chauvin Chauvin however you say his name he had a jury selected he was given or he procured counsel he was given a vigorous defense and 12 of his peers found him guilty of all charges in the moment that they did in, in my eyes I just respect that those 12 jurors know more than I do they definitely know more than I do about the case that they heard. And they're, they're, just as, they're just as good as me. It's one of the things that got on my nerves a little bit about my people, saying how much moral courage would it have taken for them to do the, quote, right thing, end quote. Because they were being intimidated by Maxine Waters and all these people. Like, of course, they were unable to just vote their conscience. All right, but you're making an assumption about people that you don't know. You are, you are assigning motives to someone that you have no idea about. Would you like that done of you? That is not fair. It is not fair to look at 12 other adults that you don't even know and say, well, they're just probably cowards because no one could see it that way unless they were scared. That's not fair, guys. It's not fair at all. And here's what's great about our systems, our institutions. Let's say it was unfair. All right, he's got an appeal. But at the moment... Twelve of his peers in a fair trial found him guilty. He's guilty, and if they want to appeal on the grounds that Maxine Waters tainted everything, all right, let them appeal, but or whatever other grounds. But I think it would be best for all of us to respect the institution and in the criminal justice system, as flawed as it is, and not assume jurors are uh, intimidated by folks because you don't have you don't have the right to assume other people's motives. Let me encourage you towards that end. All right, now, let's do this one. We'll get started on it. We'll probably have to finish it after the break. I'm a tax policy guy, economic policy guy. Uh, That's that's where I like to live. I wish more politics and government was about that. I wish there was a lot more theological training about it, too, because the Bible has things to say about what works for economic growth and how to manage wealth, both at the personal level and the corporate level. I would say the government level, too. It has concepts of private property. Like there's some uh, money takes up a lot of our lives. Money is money and economic systems dominate a lot of human interaction. And so uh, theology should have a lot more to say into it. I I might build that out for one episode and just do one big biblical economics episode. There was recently over on the Westminster Doxology podcast, uh, they they interviewed a guy with a book on this. I have, I don't think I've talked to the host yet, Cody, over there, Bradley, about this. There were some things there I was skeptical of, or I thought was maybe stretching a smidge on the text, but there's still a lot of really good stuff in that book, and I encourage listening to that interview, because it was good. It was really good discussion, and I'd like to tackle that myself uh, here soon. But uh, taxes generally is finally coming to the forefront in American politics, and so I want to talk about the moment we're in on a tax policy, and then... some tax information more broadly that you might not know. One, there's a tax plan out from the current administration that does a couple things that I want to address. One is it raises the capital gains tax. Let's talk really quick about that. You, yeah, you, you out there, you pay some taxes probably. Well, some of you probably don't, especially those of you that have a bunch of kids, which I love, I encourage. Having kids is awesome. They're the blessing of the Lord. But with our kid system, the rebates and the refunds add up that depending on how many kids you have, you might end up being a net, not a net taxpayer, depending on how much you make. It's actually quite complicated. But most of you out there, you listen. Uh, Those of you who are listening are taxpayers. But you might only think of your your income tax. You might not think as much as you should about your payroll tax, which is different than your income tax. I'm sure a lot of you are property owners for your car, your home, and you pay your property taxes. That's to a county. Then you have the state income taxes. You are taxed. You pay, you pay a lot. Now, capital gains tax may be not may not be one you've paid. Capital gains tax kicks in at a certain level. I can't remember right now. A, a certainly uh, a certain higher level of earnings from stocks or real estate. So it is a tax on investment. If you are investing money and then making money off your investments, you are taxed on that at a different rate of income. So consider someone, they're trading their time. They're trading their effort for money. That is a job. That's a wage. And that's an income tax. Some people take their money and invest it. They earn money by investing, and that's taxed differently. Joe Biden wants to raise the capital gains tax, the tax on investment. Now, this isn't anything new from some folks on the left. Let me take a quick sidebar. We'll come back to the hot topic at hand. Back in 2007 and 2008, when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running against each other in the Democratic primary, there was a, a, a portion of a debate about this, raising the capital gains tax. I can't find the video anywhere. It's like it's been scrubbed from the internet. But ABC News, who hosted that debate, has a transcript on their website where Charlie Gibson, the moderator of the debate, says to Barack Obama, when Bill Clinton lowered the capital gains tax, it resulted in more revenue because we had lower taxes on investments, more people invested, or the people who were investing invested more. Therefore, a lower rate ended up having higher money for the government. And he asked Barack Obama, would you still want to raise the capital gains tax? And Barack Obama said, yes, as a, for a matter of fairness. So yes, we'll get less money. We'll get less money to the government to fund all these programs. But as a matter of fairness, because we don't like investors, we want, to, we want to hurt them, let's raise their taxes. So this is not new, raising the capital gains tax. And the consequences aren't new either. I think whoever you are, even if you're not familiar with economic policy... You can think through this really logically. It's not hard. When you tax something, you get less of it. We have higher taxes on cigarettes. Why? Because we want people to do it less. It was one of the main strategies in New York City for a while with Michael Bloomberg to put big taxes on sodas. Why? So people would do it less. We tax things sometimes to get people to do them less. And no matter if you're trying to or not, Historically, we find when you tax something, you get less of it. You get less of that activity. Investment is a good activity. Getting money into companies and into the market allows companies to research and develop. It allows companies to expand into new markets, maybe even around the globe. It Doesn't it just help the company? Very important point here. It helps the little investor. The guy who has 10 or 15 grand in the market. It helps when the big guys who have a ton of money, it helps when they will make the market and shape the market. If they'll keep pumping money into shares of a company, it makes the little guy's 401k go up. If you're in the market right now and your your 401k is diversified into different kinds of stocks like Apple and Amazon and, uh, and Hulu or Roku or something like that and some big money investors come in and buy a bunch of shares to that, it just drives your value up. Drives up your portfolio. Over half of the United States has at least something in the stock market through their 401k or by direct investing. So investment is good. It's good for the companies. It's good for the culture. It's good for invest, Excuse me, innovation. It's good for the small-time investor. We don't want to punish investment by raising his tax. But he wants to raise it to, I think, 39%. It's like a 13% raise, I think. Or 13 percentage points up. And when that was proposed, you actually saw the market tank that day. You saw some of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, things like that go up. There are consequences to normal people here. When you try to punish the rich, there's a lot of us linked together in this market here, and it's a bad idea. It's also bad for growth. When you tax capital gains, you're taxing the future economy so that it takes longer to develop the next big technology. You're to, to get to the next internet speed to develop whatever app is next I'm thinking of technolo- technological things but whatever the next thing is if it's the next uh I don't know the next thing that will compete with fossil fuels when you're you take money out of the market by taxing it and it's a it's a bad idea all right so that is the specified moment a, a desire to raise taxes on investment will get you less investment to raise taxes on Things like income end up even diminishing employment. We've got plenty of data on that over time. That's the moment we're in. It's a bad policy. We shouldn't do it. But uh, when we come back from this break, I want to give you some more generalized information about taxes in general, who really pays them and what it means. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. None of you think this, but I think taxes are fun. Not paying them, but tax policy is a fun thing to do. We will jump on that in just a moment. Welcome back to His Radio Talk and wherever you find podcasts. This is the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us. I uh, Over the break, I thought, you, you said, Corey, you wanted to do an entire like show about thinking through biblical economics. You should at least do a primer or something before you start talking about tax policy. So really quickly, I, I do want to give a couple... Biblical worldview thoughts on economic policy. I think number one is this. The thing we are looking for, the thing the Christian wants, is for the good of all people. We want to see humans flourish. Families do well. Individuals do well. We want to see them healthy, being able to save, plan for the future. We are heartbroken by poverty. Like We want to see... Uh, a place of opportunity where people can do well, take care of themselves, and where there are safety nets where they can't take care of themselves, certainly. But that's, that's what does is, what is the Christian want in an economic system? The answer, human flourishing, innovation, the Genesis mandate of going out and uh, subduing the earth and all, of its, and all of its wonders and all of its resources. That's what we want. We also know this. The, the entire concept of stuff, of our belongings, the theme of the Bible, is something called stewardship, that none of us really own anything. Everything has been trust, entrusted to us by God. So all of Bill Gates' wealth, for whatever reason, the God of the universe decided to entrust it to him. All of the wealth that you have, whatever great or small it is, God hasn't decided to entrust it to you. And so property is entrusted... By God, to whomever He to to whomever He gives it, and so it's not communally owned. We find that specifically in the Book of Acts. I think "thou shalt not steal" itself is the concept of private property because you can't steal something that doesn't have any owner. So the the Bible endorses, but for that matter, just endorsing the concept of borders, homes. That this is my this is my stuff. This is my space. That because God has entrusted it to me and. And then God holding you accountable for what God gives you. The parables from Jesus, these concepts that I've given you A, I'm going to hold you accountable for A. That might be a talent that I've given you, it's ambition, it's ability, it's actual money. You are to steward well what I've given you because it's mine. I've just entrusted it to you. So what do Christians want? Well, we want a flourishing world where everybody has what they need and even more than they need, and we're getting to. Invent new things and make life better for all people, and we know property is God's. Uh, is God's? God's alone that He's entrusted to individual people, when it doesn't belong to the collective. We know biblically that labor is good. It is good to work. Six days you shall work is what the fourth commandment says, and the seventh day is is for rest. We know throughout the Proverbs that the the, the dullard or the sluggard is. Uh, criticized, and the opposite—the the the person with with work ethic and who prepares—that person is lifted up, and is we're told to follow after that example. In the Proverbs, we're told thrift is a good thing. Those who don't overspend and go into debt for stuff they don't need, those that plan ahead financially. So we know labor is good. We know thrift is good. We know certainly from the Old Testament law, but the Old Testament prophets, that those who cheat and hurt someone else for their own economic gain, there is very little patience for them. You read through Amos and find where wealthy and powerful people are using their wealth and power to stay wealthy and powerful and diminishing the opportunity other people have, actively hurting the opportunity other people have to make their own wealth. There will be punishment for that. So we at least know all those things about economic systems. We want people to flourish. Property is owned by an individual. Labor is good, so is thrift. And where someone is cheating someone else, there is the job of the community or the government-entrusted, excuse me, the government-empowered by the people to get justice for that person who was cheated. Now, after you have that primer... I want to take you to just some statistics about taxes, or at least income taxes in the United States. Because what you often hear is that it's unfair. We have a really unfair tax system, and that the wealthy don't pay their fair share. So I want to give you some stats, and you you can decide if that's fair or not. This information comes from what I think is called the National Taxpayers Union, and the last stats they have are for 2018. That's the year with the most, the year closest to us with the most analysis. Let's start with top 25% of earners. This is important. Here, here's what I would expect of a fair tax system. And if you disagree with me, you think that wouldn't be fair, you tell me. You can tell me at coreytruaxshow at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. For that matter, you can leave a voicemail at anchor.fm or you can use the Anchor app. You can leave a voicemail for the show so you can hear yourself on the show, giving your opinion on any of these things. Uh, but specifically the tax policy right now. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. But here's what I would think. If you add up all the dollars paid, and you talked about the top 25% of earners, let's say the top 25% of earners earned 50% of the money, here's what I would expect. That tiny 25% would pay about 50% of the taxes because they made 50% of the dollars. And if the top 1% made 10% of the money, then that top 1% should pay a disproportionate amount. They should pay 10% of the taxes in income taxes because they earned 10% of the money. And the bottom 5%, they should pay 5% of the taxes. That's what, that seems to me that which would be fair in a tax system. Here's what's actually true. The top 25% of earners earn 70% of the money. So the top 25%, they are making a a large majority of all the money earned. So you would expect, maybe, they're going to be paying 70% of the taxes. They're earning 70% of the money, but they're paying 86% of the taxes. Huh. I guess that's fair. I mean, they're making 70% of the money, so they should pay a lot of the taxes, I guess. What about the top 10%? The top 10% of earners earns 48% of the dollars. that I mean, We could talk about whether or not that's good. I think it's a worthwhile conversation. We can talk about whether or not it's good that 10% of our working people paying income taxes are earning almost half the money. Well, while we talk about that? We also can know this: that ten percent of people, they're paying seventy percent of the taxes, at least income taxes. Or that's it's limited to income taxes. There's a bunch of other taxes, but the top forty-eight percent of dollars earned, so it's ten, it's ten percent of people, but forty-eight percent of the money pays seventy percent of the taxes. If it's fair at all, it's fair in the direction that the Lower class folks, lower, uh, not lower class, I hate that term, lower income folks are paying so little. We'll go a couple more steps here. The top 5% of earners. 5%, guys. You take 100 workers that represent, or 100 employees. Let me fix that. 100 employees that, that represents the income disparity across the economy. You put them in a room, and we'll say, you five people right there, you five out of 100, you make 37% of all the dollars, and you will pay 60% of all the taxes. One more stat. The top 1% that hated, despised 1%, they make 21% of the dollars, and they pay 38% of all the taxes. And remember how statistics works. The the top 1% is included in the top 5. The top 1 and 5 is included in the top 10. That's why the numbers don't add up to 100. So they make 21% of the dollars. Here, here's what I, I know. The, the ratio is this. Your ratio of uh, how much money did we earn, our group earn, versus how much we paid, for the top 1%, it's 1.8. Top 5% is 1.6 of the ratio of how many how many of the dollars earned so they're paying over their quote fair share if their fair share is a 1 to 1 ratio maybe the most important stat the bottom 50% of earners which by the way on this chart is a 40 about $42,000 the bottom 40% 50% of earners they only make 11% of the dollars So bottom 50, they're only making 11% of all the income income dollars made through labor. And their share of the federal income tax right now is 3%. The 50%, half of workers, half of employees, 3%. If you cut it down to 47%, the bottom 47% of earners pay nothing whatsoever in federal taxes. And continuing down the income ladder... You become a tax receiver, receiver of benefits over paying in. That's on income taxes doesn't necessarily uh, reflect, uh, what am I thinking of? Payroll taxes. And now I'm just going to ask you, you can tell by my tone, my opinion, is that fair? Is that fair in the United States? And when you hear politicians say, our tax system isn't fair. The top 1% need to be paying more. And I would say back, well, the one, the top 1% are are paying 38% of the total taxes. What should it be? I actually would love that. I'd love to be able to have people answer the question. What, this problem that you are saying is there. You're saying we have a problem. What's the solution? Maybe that's a good way to end the show today. I, yep, I'm doing it. Uh, I was I had to pause there for a minute because I, I had to decide if this was worth it. One of the more challenging dynamics in a professional relationship, interpersonal relationship, I'm sure in a marriage, I don't know from experience, but I'm sure this is the case. It's hard when someone only ever wants to point out a problem and never comes with a potential solution. That's one step of hard. Here's what's even harder when someone knows something's wrong and they, they definitely want to express this is a problem and you ask for a solution, they, have, they say, I have no idea. Like I saw this in the, um, the case of this, this really tragic case of the girl in Ohio who got shot by a police officer, Micaiah Bryant, I believe her name was. She was wielding a knife and seemingly was about to stab a girl and got shot. The whole thing is, the whole thing is worth being sad over really a girl in foster care, and I mean, imagine what has to happen to you to be in a situation where you're wielding a knife at another person. Just the whole thing's quite sad. But I have a bunch of folks in media saying, what else, like we gotta do something else. It's gotta be different besides shooting someone who's about to stab someone. It's gotta be different. Okay, well do you have any ideas? And the answer is usually no. No. The answer is, they don't. They let's shoot him in the leg. All right, I got that. I mean, it's a smaller target. It's a moving target. It doesn't necessarily going to stop you from continuing your stabbing of somebody. Let's shoot him in the. One person said, shoot him in the behind. There's. They seem to come with either nonsensical solutions or none at all. Let me encourage you, if you're that person, to not be and ask yourself if that's the case especially around like big institutional matters in your church. Are you the person who just points out all the problems to make sure everyone remembers? We got problems. There, there's a lot of problems. You got to solve them. All right. Do you have anything? Do you have a suggestion in your institution, your, uh, your job? Are, are you the one? Yep. But this thing's still broken. I got an issue here. This thing's broken. It's still not fixed. Okay. Can you help? Could, do you have any, do you have any ideas on how that could get better? in your relationships for the country. It see it does seem to be we have adopted an ethic where you are righteous if you just point out the problems. You don't have to come with any kind of real solution. And oh uh, I don't get too tested here, but certain problems you point out, you're you are chastised for not pointing out the other problem. You have to point out all the problems at the same time. You're not allowed to just talk about the one so I think that's a, a decent place to finish today. It's just a, a life lesson, a personal lesson. I'm not asking you to be like me, where I, I tend to be a, a pocket full of sunshine. I mean, you've heard me get a little fired up here and there, angry about something or frustrated with something. But largely, I'm incessantly positive. It's really obnoxious, honestly. I'm I'm always finding the bright side of things. Uh, So I'm not asking you to be me, but I am saying this is poisonous to your marriage, your friendships, your church, your job. If you are just incessantly negative, always pointing out the problems without ever being one of the sources for a solution, well, believe it or not, I I have time at the end of the show. I very maybe the first time in six years the Corey Truax show, I've come to the end of the prep sheet and I have nothing else to say. So let me just tell you something I saw right before I started the show. of uh, let's go of national interest at least a little bit and then state interest. For COVID precaution purposes, the presidential address, the first year it's not called the State of the Union, the first year it's called state, uh, the presidential address. And if you've listened a long time, you know I can't stand these things. I don't care who the president is. I cannot stand the pomp and circumstance of setting up the president like he's a, like he's a king, like we had a revolution over this stuff for a reason. But because of that, it's going to be in a room with only like only like 200 people That is not a good look. I wonder uh, how how bad those optics will be, a very empty room. Uh, But there is this, those of you that stay up late, here's me being that pocket full of sunshine, incessant positivity. You'll probably have a lot shorter of those long standing ovations. There's usually a thousand people at State of the Unions, you have one fifth of it. And so, you know, you don't have those obnoxious things. Now, here's the other fun part Tim Scott is giving the response. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina going to give the response to the President of the United States. And just as a South Carolinian, it's one of those moments of pride. I like that about us. You know, there was a time in the early 2010s where this state, with all of its history, had an Indian American woman governor and a black senator at the same time. And for all of, the, all the, all of our problems, I guess, like that's a, that's a cool thing. And now on the national stage, we get to see... Uh, our senator, also a brother in Christ. Tim Scott's a genuine believer giving the response. So just a good piece of news to end the show today. Court Truex Show listeners, thanks for spending time on WHRT and wherever you find podcasts. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.